Good afternoon, and welcome to the phone call this afternoon with Roots Action and their coalition partners who are hosting Kevin Gastolo and Marsha Coleman Adebejo, who um, I want to give you a brief introduction. And if you're interested in asking a question of either of our guests today, then please hit 1 on your phone and I will be able to pass your question along or have you ask the question. Uh, first, I want to introduce Marsha Coleman Adebejo. Marsha, when she was working as senior policy analyst for the EPA, became a whistleblower because the EPA was ignoring her complaints about a U.S. company that was harming the environment and human health in its then, then the Eum mining in South Africa. Um, Marsha might be able to tell us a little bit more about that. She is a founder of the No Fear Coalition and the EPA Employees Against Racism. Under her leadership, uh, the No Fear organized a grassroots campaign that won passage of the Notification of Federal Employees Anti-Discrimination and Retaliation Act. Coleman Adebejo serves on the board of directors of the National Whistleblower Center and was inducted into the Project on Government's Oversight Hall of Fame. Uh, we're very happy to have Marsha with us today. We also have it with us Kevin Gastola. Um, Kevin is a journalist for FireDogLake.com, and he regularly covers whistleblowing, uh, secrecy, and WikiLeaks, along with other various issues created by the global security state of America. Kevin is extensively covered, has extensively covered the court martial of Chelsea Manning and co-authored Truth and Consequences, the U.S. versus Private Manning with the nation's Greg Mitchell. So thank you, Kevin, also for being with us today. Um, I want to ask if either of our guests have any remarks or comments they'd like to share before we take any questions, um, and remind you, if you do have questions, press 1 on your phone and um, let us know that, or um, yes, just press 1 on your phone and we'll be able to get you in the queue for asking a question. Um, Kevin, do you have any remarks for us? I actually don't have anything particular to start with. I'd, I'd be eager to get the questions and start to hear what others might uh, want to talk about. Yes, we'll do that. I, I actually do have a, a, a bit of a question maybe for both of you in terms of the latest. It's not that great a, um, a positive step for national security in the country, but this week um, there were some provisions of the Patriot Act that did sunset, and that does stop some of the collection of um, metadata that was going on and may give some people a sense that things are getting better or that there's an opportunity that things may be getting better in terms of NSA um, overstep. Do either of you have comments on that? Well, what I would say is that I thought that it was more significant, at least symbolically, to see the provisions of the Patriot Act sunset on Monday or, or expire, and that that was a moment where 
it was really remarkable because if you go all the way back to September 11th, uh, the attacks hasn't been this where Congress came up empty and was unable to renew provisions. So uh, while some of the issues can be attributed to uh, dysfunction and the way that Mitch McConnell was scheduling business at the same time, I do think that there was this strain of very popular support for what uh, politicians like Rand Paul and even uh, Democrat Ron Wyden were doing to push against uh, and force some kind of changes before the provisions were extended. And then, remarkably, what happened is uh, we had the USA Freedom Act pass. And while there's a lot in that legislation that is uh, really uh, renewing uh, structures that were already in place for mass surveillance. And also, uh, it's very weak in, in terms of when you consider Edward Snowden and everything that he's revealed about the NSA. It's a very weak response to what he's put responsibility on all of us to, to do and, and pay attention to. But at the same time, uh, I do think that it was uh, remarkable that this was where government had to go um, as a reaction to everyone who's been outraged about mass surveillance. Um, I guess, you know, I, I agree with, with everything he's saying. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we face in the movement is how do we sustain these kinds of popular moments in history? It's very difficult. And I think if we had been able... If the whistleblower community had been able to sustain uh, a greater momentum um, throughout the United States, we would have been able to get stronger language um, through Congress. So I think, you know, regardless of whether we're looking at, you know, the um, Black Lives Matter movement or whistleblower movement, I mean, one of the problems we're having is just um, developing enough public momentum to get the strongest possible language through Congress. Thank you. Um, it's good to hear that, and it is a challenge to imagine how one sustains a, a positive moment that comes up. I'm trying to get you all a question here to you. Um, so, Marcia, I have a question for you now. Um, you mentioned briefly uh, in your response to my first question about the Black Lives Matter movement, which has um, been a significant part of the landscape for movement building for the past few months. And I know that you, part of your focus with the EPA is about um, environmental justice, and the effects of the environment that has sometimes been ignored by the EPA to the harm of human rights and um, human health. Can you talk a little bit about how there might be connections that are evident or work that is growing out of the Black Lives Matter movement that connect to what's going on with um, assaults to the environment by possibly by U.S. companies? 
I think that, that these movements are very much connected and, and interwoven. I see the environmental justice movement, at least in the inception, the beginning of the environmental justice movement, as a movement for human rights as well as environmental rights. And I think it would be very difficult to, to disentangle um, um, the ability of people to strive for the protection of the planet upon which our existence depends and the existence of human beings to live on the earth in a dignified and in a healthy way. And so the movement of environmental justice sort of brought a lot of these um, issues to the forefront and the, the right of people to be able to live, I mean, particularly African-American people, just to live has been a major struggle uh, since we arrived in this country in 1619. Um, the Black Lives Movement has really clarified and brought um, this issue into relief. And you probably know that I'm one of the leaders um, in Washington, D.C., um, uh, on, this, on this issue. And we organized a group um, called Hands Up Coalition D.C., in which we took our struggle um, to the Department of Justice. And we held demonstrations in front of the Department of Justice every Monday called uh, Justice Mondays. Um, and we demanded that the Department of Justice release the civil rights investigations into the death of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And eventually we prevailed on that along with our colleagues and all, all across the country. The Obama administration was clearly dragging its feet on this issue. Um, and so I think the issue of people organizing to demand their rights as human beings um, has, has, you know, has a long history primarily rooted in the African-American struggle in this country. Um, and, um, and I think we're and, and all these other movements, whether it's the women's movement, the anti-war movement, they've all learned a lot from that basic movement of people who were not even considered human, struggling for basic human rights. So the EPA was, was also a part of that corporate culture that developed, um, that devalued um, human life. And so when I was the EPA liaison to the White House during the Nelson Mandela, um, the dawn of the Nelson Mandela government, that's essentially what I found, is that when a U.S. corporation was operating in South Africa and, um, and, and South African mine workers were digging out a substance called vanadium pentoxide out of the earth, and they were literally dying from their exposure to this to the substance when I raised the issue of, you know, of, of putting pressure on this U.S. corporation, Union Carbide to be precise, on this U.S. corporation um, to stop these kinds of practices that were injuring uh, and killing people and, and, and basically leveling whole communities, I was given a direct order to shut up. Uh, and one of the reasons why I was given a direct order, number one is because whenever there's a conflict between corporations and human beings, usually the corporations went out. And then second of all, because the human beings that I was discussing were black. And so, you know, so we had to wage uh, a struggle to make sure that um, this issue was brought to the forefront. And in the course of that process, of course, you know, I had to file a lawsuit and, and we went to court and, and, you know, all of that. But, but this is a long-term struggle. And so we have to develop strategies for sort of settling down into this struggle. 
and making sure that, you know, we have a winnable strategy and that our goal is to win and not just to struggle, but that our goal is to win the struggle. Um, and so for me, the, the cross-pollination is very obvious between envir- environmental protection and human rights. Yes, you do make it very clear that there's a direct connection there. Um, and important to not just be in the struggle, but to win the struggle. So these yes. days, now that corporations can, um, it seems like their power has expanded since even the time that you were calling them to task for what they were doing um, in South Africa. Communities, especially communities here even in the states that are trying to protect themselves from the act of corporations, you said you had to file a lawsuit and that was the strategy that you took um, do you have recommendations for what communities are trying to do if they're trying to deal with a grievance that's affecting their backyard or their lake or their stream? I think the most important thing for communities to do is to organize. It really is, a, you know, a, a 19th, 20th, 21st century strategy, but we really have to reconnect um, human. We have to reconnect and and develop communities and a sense of community. And one of the tragedies, of course, of capitalist development is that we're all living in these individual little pods, and sometimes these pods communicate with each other and sometimes they don't. Um, And when they don't communicate, it means that people that are far more organized are the ones who are in power and in control. And the only way we really have power and control is when we begin to organize our communities and organize our various groups and organizations and secret societies or whatever we're in. I mean, we really do have to organize. And so, um, you know, we have to understand the limitations of law, the limitations of the legislative arena, and understand that the real power is at the grassroots level. Um, and that once we are organized, you know, we're able to do amazing things. Um, but as individuals, we're really quite limited. And so one of the things that I've, orga- one of the things that I've really tried to, um, work on with, with groups, whether it's around environmental groups or human rights groups, is how do you organize? What are effective strategies for organizing? And that tends to be fairly tailored, of course. But I think people can sit down usually around a kitchen table, and it's usually women around those tables, and we understand how we begin to pull people together and then how we begin to place demands on power to, to, um, to, to, to negotiate whatever the issue is. And I think regardless of whether you're in an extremely poor community or you're in a fairly well-off community, um, the first step is always to sit down and begin to organize, to, to develop a list of demands, uh, and then to begin to act on those demands. And sometimes that takes the form of demonstrations, petitioning. It may take the form of, you know, walkathons, die-ins, introducing legislation. But, you know, you come up with a strategy that works for the people in that group, and then you begin to to implement those strategies. Um, you know, the thing is that with, with whistleblowers, because we tend to be fairly spread out in our issues, um, it becomes in many ways uh, a little bit more 
challenging uh, because some of us are national security um, whistleblowers, some of us are accounting whistleblowers, some of us are civil rights whistleblowers. And so bringing us all together, I think, tends to be a challenge. But for the most part, most people are organizing around a stream or a tree or around a child that's been murdered by the police or whatever. And those kinds of um, uh, organizational strategies can be quite targeted and quite effective if people are really committed to making sure that they are really committed to to a successful strategy of winning whatever battle it is that they're fighting. Thank you. It's encouraging to hear words like that. Um, and uh, if I, hopefully if you've just joined us or you've been with us for a bit and you're listening to, that was Marsha Coleman at Abejo. We're also joined by Kevin Gastola. And um, if you have a question, hit one, and I'll be able to uh, get your question answered. So um, Kevin, in, in hearing what Marcia just shared and thinking about how organizing works, I know as a longtime organizer that education is very key. And these days, education, a lot of it does happen online. FireDogLake.com is a source for people of information that can be used to educate as part of organizing. And do you have recommendations for helping to build a movement, helping people to share the kind of information that helps people to take action? Well, I think that uh, first and foremost, as a journalist, I would say that I don't think that there's anything elite that I'm doing anymore. And there's a lot that everyone who's listening could do to bring attention to issues that people would mobilize around and use to fuel their movements around whatever issues. Uh, so it's, it's uh, fairly easy now, uh, aside from the fact that you may struggle to find an audience, uh, it's fairly easy now to go out and do the journalism because of the way things are. There's plenty of places to post. And, and in your community, if you see something happening and you want to uh, write it up and you want to call attention to something going on that you feel is wrong or unjust, uh, you're certainly uh, capable of, of doing that. Uh, and, and I certainly would encourage people to, to do that if uh, they have something to contribute. Uh, and I also would say that the role that the uh, media plays is, is very critical. I take it very seriously. It's why I spend a lot of time when I am writing about whistleblowers. I spend time dissecting and going through some of the arguments that are made uh, usually against whistleblowers. Uh, it seems that uh, the people who occupy positions in our news media have um, a learning curve or some kind of an issue with understanding what a lot of people go through as whistleblowers. And it's very necessary, that I think, to challenge some of what they put forward because it influences what people think about whistleblowers, whether they are national security, civil rights, whatever issue. Uh, there's a certain 
set of things that are said about people who are taking uh, these courageous steps to blow the whistle. Thank you, um, Kevin. It certainly does take <clears throat> courage to be a whistleblower. June is uh, National Torture Awareness Month, and this month is for recognizing survivors of torture and whistleblowers, because whistleblowers are some, in some ways the true patriots of the country, and certainly in terms of protecting our Constitution. So thanks to all whistleblowers out there, and it's great to have you on the phone with us, Marcia. Um, I am either not great at using our technology or I'm missing the folks who are on queue for questions. So you will have to continue to be hopefully somewhat entertained or at least not unentertained by my posing questions to our um, two guests this afternoon, this evening, for some of y'all. So Kevin, I have a question of you that is a little bit connected to the book that you wrote, um, and you wrote that book with Greg Mitchell, Truth or Consequences, the U.S. versus Private Manning. I wondered what, you, you talked about the fact that anyone can write about something they care about, they think there's something that's going on that's wrong, they certainly have a right to start writing about that. So when you started looking at the situation that was going on with um, with Chelsea, then Bradley Manning. What was compelling to you? What did you hope the outcome would be? And can you give us an update? Yes. Uh, what I tell people is I got into covering Chelsea Manning's story by uh, the documents that were released by WikiLeaks. And I spent quite a lot of time uh, covering the 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 U.S. Uh, diplomatic cables that were released uh, by WikiLeaks uh, from December 2010 through into 2011, and those were coming out week to week to week. Uh, there were all sorts of incredible revelations that were coming out. Um, we, a few quick examples: we we learned about some of how the drone program was working in Yemen and how. Uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh was saying that those bombs were Yemen's when in fact the CIA was actually involved in strikes there. Uh, there were there were things about uh, spying going on at the UN that the State Department was involved in. Uh, there were things related to climate change, how the uh, U.S. was strong-arming diplomats behind closed doors so that they could weaken um, agreements. All, all, all sorts of different things that we we learned, and 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 I thought that because this was so significant, and I was benefiting so greatly, I was publishing these stories, and and it was really an am, amazing resource to go through and write about these different things, and I was getting a good response from people as readers, and I figured the thing that I needed to do now is to follow up and continue to uh, track the story of this source because that's really what Chelsea Manning was. She was a source. She provided a bunch of information to WikiLeaks, which made a lot of incredible investigative journalism possible. And so now the U.S. government was in the process of punishing Chelsea Manning for um, providing this information, uh, for, for making these unauthorized disclosures. Uh, we were doing things uh, the most extreme way they were criminalizing her was accusing her of aiding the enemy. And when the 
court martial unfolded, we found explicitly that Kelsey Manning was being accused of helping Al Qaeda, and uh, that they were that, that the government was suggesting that the material uh, had. They even had created this story that there were cables that Osama bin Laden had viewed in his compound, and so because he was able to see these materials, he somehow had aided terrorism in the process of, of, of committing this crime, and so she needed to face potential of, of serving life in a military prison. And, uh, and so I, I followed every day, and I was very um, intently, intensely interested in her case just because of all of the, the different threads and, and, and how fast the, the case happened to be and just how many different things and different issues you could get into and discuss through her case. There was so much that you could do to educate people by simply talking about Chelsea Manning's case. Uh, and I thought that there was a lot more that you could do with her case than even with uh, Edward Snowden's uh, just because there was so much information that was revealed. You know, well, uh, almost about, somewhere around a half million documents revealed in, in this, and, and, and many of them I thought quite justified in their release uh, because we were seeing evidence of war crimes, we were seeing evidence of what was really happening in Iraq and the Afghanistan wars, uh, we were seeing um, what the fabricated reasons were that people were remaining in prison in Guantanamo, uh, we were seeing uh, details of, of what was going on behind closed doors with diplomats and and the State Department is highly, highly, highly secretive, and also, um, it, it, in my opinion, probably one of the more corrupt arms of the U.S. government. Just, uh, I mean, for example, the fact that uh, I believe it's it's something um, well over uh, one entire presidential term there was no Inspector General in the State Department, which is the person who would oversee as the watchdog. Uh, so there's nobody to go to and complain about things happening internally in the State Department. And uh, that's just, you know, one example of, of the way those operations were going. So I found that Chelsea Manning's case was very important to follow. Um, and then there were a lot of reactions to it. Uh, it brought out a lot of uh, vitriol from people who were journalists that I've, I found was necessary to push back against. And simply by being there, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of media that were there day-to-day -day following this case. Uh, the book I wrote covered mostly the pretrial phase of Chelsea Manning's case. It was something I got out quickly with Greg Mitchell to educate people in the run-up to her trial. And, uh, and then during the trial, um, which was very intense, um, the, and went through the summer of 2013, exactly the same time that Edward Snowden was revealing information about the NSA. And so it was very, um, you know, I think very important to be there and see what was being done to someone whose conscience I think was actually in the right place. Yes, that's true of most or many whistleblowers. Their conscience is definitely in the right place and they do care about the well-being of the, their fellow U.S. residents uh, has been my experience in knowing folks who are doing whistleblowing. Um, Marcia, can I ask you another question? 
Of course. Thank you. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about the No Fear Coalition. Uh, what you know, what was driving you to make it happen, and what is some of the work that you are involved in now, um, especially related to movement building that you mentioned before. Um, and do you still work for the MP EPA? Oh my goodness, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I just in, 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 in a sense, I want, my mirrors. So. Um, whistleblowers that keep their jobs. Yeah, no, very few of us. Yeah, very few of us do. Um, in fact, I don't think I know a single whistle. I think maybe I've met one whistleblower who's kept his job, and I've been to one retirement party of a whistleblower um, in the 18 years. Wow. Wow. In the federal government. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, it's it's really um it's it's really quite almost impossible, I think, in many ways, um, for whistleblowers to keep their job. Maybe I'm not gonna answer your question exactly and you'll have to sort of repeat some of your questions. But but one of the one of the one of the importance of exposedfacts.com is that it provides um a vehicle for people to blow the whistle without having to step forward and do so. So with ExposedFacts.com, um, um, you know, you're able to um, to blow the whistle in somewhat of a, um, of a, of a sort of an anonymous way uh, through the use of encryption. And then um, there are people at Exposed Facts who obviously will do some research on the issue that you're blowing the whistle and then the organization will will provide the opportunity to get the information out as opposed to the whistleblowers sort of putting their necks on the chopping block. And I think that's really important because um, uh, for people who are listening to this uh, webcast and they're considering blowing the whistle, I mean, you really do have to consider the fact that if you're blowing the whistle against the United States government, you are coming, you are going up against um, the state. You're going up against the most powerful militaristic uh, organization on the planet right now. And you have to really make a decision whether or not you uh, have the resources, whether or not you have the community, um, the media, um, uh, the ability to organize media around your case, um, the legal teams that you would need um, to fight against a potential suit uh, brought by the United States. So, so it really is um, something that I would I always recommend that people really ponder, really meditate on this issue before they decide um, to, to blow the whistle on an issue because it, it is a life-changing um, experience and sometimes it's a life-ending experience. And so one has to really be very careful. And in my case, um, I'm not really, maybe ignorance is the, um, you know, is, 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 was a good thing in my case because, you know, even though I'm a political scientist um, and have organized a lot in my life, I didn't really understand the full implications of what I was doing uh, when I blew the whistle. Uh, and so in many ways I sort of walked through the pro process um, uh, learning as I went through um, using a lot of the resources that I had around me because I've been a, a part of social movements for a long time. But even with the, with the resources and the community that I had, it was 
um, it was still very, very difficult, and 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 I'm still in that process. I mean, I filed my complaint against the United States government in 1995, 96, and I still haven't finished going to court yet. Um, and I just real, I just received a message from my attorney that I have depositions coming up for the last phase of my case. Um, and so I am still going to go back to court, and I am still going to, um, uh, you know, convince a jury that the EPA uh, discriminates, retaliates, abuses whistleblowers. So when I say that this is a lifelong process, um, this takes decades and decades um, to adjudicate through the legal process. If you don't end up in jail, like um, you know, like Chelsea Manning. And I also went to a couple of, of her trials and, you know, just to support her and, um, and, and saw the stress, um, on her face and understood the kind of high stakes that she was involved in. And it's, it's very difficult. Um, so why did I blow the whistle? I guess that was the question you were asking. You know, like most whistleblowers, I saw an injustice and, tried very hard um, to adjudicate that injustice through the EPA. And like a lot of people, I was under the impression that the EPA was an organization that wanted to protect the planet as opposed to a corporation that worked on behalf of, you know, of corporate America. And by the way, you know, at times did, did some really good things for the environment, but, but to a large extent it represents corporations. And so I was, in fact, in that sort of, you know, sweet spot of sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, I think. Uh, and so when I found out about this community that was being poisoned by a major U.S. corporation, you know, I reported it, uh, thinking that the EPA was going to do the right thing and, and give me the authorization to contact the head of this corporation and begin to start making things uh, right for the people who were injured and dying. And in fact, as I said earlier, I was given a direct order to shut up and look the other way while these people were dying. Um, in fact, my case was even a little bit worse than that because um, when the U.S. first started negotiating with Nelson Mandela's government, they sort of needed a, a black face, to be very frank with you, as the face of sort of the Environmental Protection Agency. And, um, and, but at the same time, they wanted to make sure that U.S. corporations were protected and that they were going to get the first dibs on businesses in the new um, in the new South Africa, uh, and so so there was a challenge there to, for the for the corporation for the EPA, and so what they did was they asked me to sort of to to be the head of this organization, um, to, to head up the negotiations on environment because I had a PhD in you know in development and and Africa, and I was an anti-apartheid activist and I think had some street crits um, with the ANC at the same time that they were sort of pushing me forward as the face of the negotiations on environment. They had colleagues of mine, or at least one colleague that we've been able to identify, who they were sending to South Africa behind my back to negotiate with the white South Afrikaners in South Africa, basically allaying any fears that they had um, that the U.S. government uh, did not support them um, and to make sure that the Afrikaners understood that nothing had really changed except that Nelson Mandela had become the symbolic face of South Africa. 
And when I and actually a lot of this I found out through someone who was watching both sides in action and slipped some papers under my door one night in which I saw some conversations that were going on behind my back where they were sending white colleagues to South Africa to to discuss um, uh, U.S. support for the Afrikaners while publicly supporting Nelson Mandela. Um, so so it was a very comp- somewhat complicated um, uh, situation. And I wrote a book about this, too, as you know. It's called No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. And so I decided to blow the whistle because my conscience wouldn't permit me to do anything else. Um, and when they removed me from my position at EPA, I organized two um, uh, two missions to South Africa uh, with medical doctors to to really understand um, the poisoning that was taking place um, uh, by by these corporations and the impact they had on these communities. Um, and also, I wanted to begin to organize some kind of support base to fight in South Africa to fight these U.S. corporations so that the communities could get some kind of reparations for the harm that they had been visited um, by the corporations. Um, In the process of doing all this, um, I testified before Congress twice. After I won my case, by the way, I won one of the largest lawsuits ever won against the United States government. Uh, And after I won, um, Congress became involved and decided to hold congressional hearings. And after I testified before Congress, uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner and Sheila Jackson Lee introduced the No Fear Act. And you're right, it became, after it was passed, it became the first civil rights law, uh, whistleblower law of this century. Um, so, so, so it's an ongoing battle. I think it's a battle that's really worth fighting, by the way. And even though I think it's a huge battle to take on, I cannot imagine, um, I can't imagine doing anything other than what I've done. I've never regretted taking on the U.S. government. I don't regret it now, even though I'm still in court against the U.S. government. I think it's a part of our, you know, it's a part of our duty as human beings to take on these very powerful interests and to make sure that we're a part of the solution, that we're the ones fighting for human life, and we're not just sort of going along with the program. So I think I answered your question, but... If I didn't, just, you know, let me know. I would. You certainly did. Thank you very much. I'm, um, I just am a, a bit awestruck that you stay so positive given all the realities, including that you're still dealing with your lawsuit. So my hat's off to you. If I had on a hat, I would take it off to you in terms of your staying so strong and positive about your outlook on the world and what we can accomplish. Um, I would, I want to hear from both of you guys about what, uh, you know, what you would say to someone in high school, college, even middle school, because I, I have nieces and nephews in my life and they're teens and pretty early adolescents who are touched by seeing the Black Lives Matter um, movement are enraged by seeing black and brown people killed and uh, people getting away with environmental assaults all over the country and the world. And they're not very, they're not jaded or wildly apathetic. It's just hard to get them to have 
enthusiasm and passion about a political struggle, even doing the education, getting them to go to uh, read something, for instance, that you know Kevin wrote or other folks have done on blog posts is, is a challenge. So advice, this is <laughs> not quite parenting advice I'm asking from y'all, but you know, if you're talking to younger people in their teens to early 20s, and and I'm going to kick this to you first, Kevin, if you would take it. Uh, what are some of the ways that you would encourage them to stay encouraged? And I know anger can build a lot of energy for change, but when you just feel like, well, you know, we're not going to win, it's the rest of my life to just keep it from getting way worse, is there anything that you would say to try to, you know, keep them, get them psyched or keep them psyched? Yeah, uh, but if it's all right, I'd like to take 30 seconds just to add some context to what Marsha was saying because I just, you know, I applaud everything that she said and I think the, it's, it's really important to note that what whistleblowers are doing, as she was sharing, uh, they continue to fight the government in many different ways after they've revealed information. And I, and I don't think people always fully understand it, but I just wanted to note someone that's in the, the circle of all of this Stand Up for Truth at these uh, events that have gone on in the past week, uh, Thomas Drake, that he continues to, as an NSA whistleblower, continues to fight in court against the government. Um, in fact, right now, the, a federal judge is actually investigating allegations that the government destroyed documents related to the investigation into him when he was accused of leaking. Um, and, and that's very significant. Um, and, and also, you know, we've we've had this reality. Um, I think it was a year ago, sometime last year, that it was found that all of his he submitted complaints again um, to the IG, and those were rejected about whistleblower retaliation going on within government. So it's just to say that once you get out of government, um, as I found um, talking to, to 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 Tom Drake. Uh, that there continue to be ways that you can fight and continue this battle against the government. Um, but what I would say to young people who are uh, interested in doing something with their uh, outrage or, or they see something that's going on in their community that makes them terribly concerned, uh, I suppose I could just put myself forward as an example. Uh, I was participating in protests when I was in college, and I was just going to events that were anti-war demonstrations uh, in Chicago, Illinois. And I decided that one of the things I was going to do was start coming home after those events and write about those protests and make it possible for people to read about what was going on. And then I took it a step further, and I started asking people, and they're also quoting speakers at those events. And it wasn't just, well, this is what I saw. This is what people are saying at these protests. And then I was finally um, giving people a platform who aren't typically given a platform to speak in U.S. media. And then uh, I started to 
gain this understanding of how important it is to give people who are part of grassroots movements a voice so that they can talk about what's going on. And so you don't always get uh, only official viewpoints from people who are in police departments or people who are spokespeople for uh, spy agencies or people who are working in the White House as uh, the, um, the the spinmeisters or whatever, and and now we're talking to people on the ground who actually matter. We're talking about people. We're, I'm you know we're following people in the Black Lives Matter movement, or we're following people who are trying to hold uh, grassroots actions around getting the Patriot Act to sunset, and and that's very significant. You once you make that that move from you know just uh, talking about your opinions about the world to actually connecting with others, then I think you're starting to introduce a lot of people in different parts of the country to movements, and you're giving them the chance to build connections and actually have some kind of an impact, uh, which is what we we need. And I also think that like people should be very um, very aggressive and visionary in what they want to do. There are a lot of very significant problems, and I mean, it's, I think it's really important that we that we have uh, an EPA whistleblower on this call right now because you know climate change could not be more of a pressing issue. Uh, tending to environmental destruction could not be m more of a pressing issue, and I think even more than whether the government is spying on all of us every single day. Uh, and so I think you know, given what it could mean if we do not do anything about this, the, these these issues in the future and going forward, it's very important that people are very aggressive and visionary about what they do in their communities. And I think that's also why um, if you're putting the possibilities for change, if you're only filtering it through what's possible in Congress or what kind of language you got into a piece of legislation, then we're not going to be able to do what we need to do to protect the planet. We're not going to be able to protect our rights or our civil liberties. It's, it's quite clear from all the coverage I've done that a lot of times what I see happen is people settle for something way too early. And that's my attitude with the USA Freedom Act is that people settled way too early on what uh, was going to be uh, something they could pass in Congress and it turned out to be uh, wholly inadequate, and now we realize that we're all going to have to come back for round two. And in round two, there's going to be people who are just ready to fight back against you uh, because the security hawks lost the in the round with the USA Freedom Act. And that's going to be the same with any piece of legislation that that if we you know we get a victory, then somebody on the other side who is in favor of allowing destruction because it can benefit corporations well, they're going to try to get rid of those regulations so that they can get the power back. And so that's why it's very important to have um, these connections, I think, between like the journalists that are following the grassroots communities that are introducing people to what's going on in the different parts of the country so that they can latch on to those different things and, and get involved in something that's really that's real. And then that can filter up and maybe have some kind of effect on what Congress does or, or maybe have some effect in deciding how the power, how people in power react to what is happening because, you know, and I think that's where Marsh, that's why I hear when I, when Marsh is talking, but this is my view is that people are the ones that are going to create any sort of change. Um, it's 
it's how things work in this country. It's, you know, you can go all the way back to the start of this country. It, it, power didn't happen from the top. It happens because people at the bottom want something to be done. Absolutely true. And most um, movements in this country were won by and sustained by a, not a huge percent of the population, but a really passionate group of people that stuck in there and stayed with it. So I appreciate you sharing, Kevin, that it's important to be visionary and aggressive. Uh, Marsha, you talked about people making demands and figuring out what those demands are and being your vision can help you to imagine what those demands need to be. Uh, and for, for many people, making demands and knowing they have those demands and they want to push for those demands requires that sense of being aggressive, especially in a culture that encourages you to be quiet and step back and you know, ask for something instead of demand it. So I really appreciate you all sharing that. I um, want to give you probably your last set of questions before our hour ends. We've got about six minutes left. Let me try to read here what we need to pay attention to. Um, I, I hear from both of y'all that having a grassroots approach is important. Uh, Kevin, you talked about that grassroots approach working its way up to affect Congress, and um, that's both something that you think is worthwhile pursuing, but also in asking for enough and not settling for what you only what you think only what you think you can get or only what you think is possible. I might be paraphrasing you wrong, correct me if I am, but um, what I want to ask as a follow-up or what I want to ask from both of y'all to respond to is, as before we go, you know, say goodbye, as it were, is to imagine if you were thinking about your approach to making change happen. I, I don't necessarily just want to use the word civic engagement because it may not be broad enough. And the kinds of things that you can do are volunteering locally where you live and work and play and, and um, practice your faith if you practice faith. So you could, that's one choice of what you could do is be very active where you live, including being active in local elections. You can protest and be part of marches and um, actions to make change at the state and federal level. Or you could focus a lot on um, Congress and the Senate at the national level, making phone calls, writing letters, meeting with your congressperson, your senator. How would y'all balance one's activist time between those three options of working locally in your town and county on whatever set of issues are, are important to you, whether that's keeping the schools open or keeping the river clean, um, being active in actions and protests and making demands at the state and federal level for whatever kind of change you want to see happen, or doing lots of focus on the Congress and the Senate with letters and visits and that kind of grassroots lobbying and whatnot. So I will let you start, Kevin, and then you can um, be the last to speak, Marsha. 
to respond to this question. Well, speaking as a journalist, I would say that people should pick one or two things that they really want to work on and then aggressively go after advancing that issue and making some kind of an impact. And uh, that's my approach. Um, and and I, you know, I've, I've particularly been interested in uh, whistleblowing and, and secrecy, and so I've been spending a lot of time um, going at those. And, and, and that's rather broad, and there's a lot of different things that those encapsulate, but I think it's important for people to be educated and then, uh, you know, expand the vision and and decide that you're, you're not going to give up. I think it's very important, uh, you know, the one thing that I would leave, the one thought I would leave people with at the end of this call here is that it's not our job to compromise or figure out how to deal with our demands and whether they're realistic. Um, that's not our job. I think our job is to tell the truth about what's actually going on. Um, at, when I write reports, I don't write what I think Congress is capable of responding to and, and making changes. I don't, I don't propose the solution and then edit it before I publish because Congress isn't going to actually be able to do that solution right now. Uh, I just put it out there and then hope that people debate the things that need to be done and, and, and start to understand the actual problems that are out there. And then it's the problem of people in power to figure out how to respond to the people and, and how to respond to journalism. I mean, specifically, it's the problem of Congress to figure out what actually should be done about all the mass surveillance or it's, you know, any other issue. It's, it's their problem. We don't have to edit ourselves and uh, reduce what our vision is for a better world. Fantastic. That's really great and encouraging to hear. You guys are better than going to church for me. So, Marsha, what are your thoughts about how you would encourage people to uh, take action or use their activist energy? Well, first of all, let me just also put out there that I write for Black Agenda Reports. Um, I'm an editor and columnist. So, so a lot of the issues I've discussed today, you can find articles that um, I've authored about these issues there. Um, I guess for me... I'm a, I'm a political scientist, so I'm a strategist, and I guess I don't really see how you break down those three issues. I mean, because um, they all go together at some point, and so I find it difficult to to dissect those things. So first, usually you start off with you know with the basic organizing, with the basic coming together as community around a particular issue, and then you sort of decide. Who are the people you need to get involved in order to push the movement or push the process forward? And, you know, if it's a local issue, you know, you're looking at media, you're looking at, you know, maybe state or local legislature, you're looking at, you know, school boards, whatever. But it's always sort of pushing off from a base of, of um, sort of an organizing base, some kind of base of power that you've created to address a certain demand and to create enough power within that base to be able to make um, sustainable and winnable demands. So, um, so for me, I suppose I, I really don't see these issues as being very dissected between volunteer, state and local, and, and Congress. What I would say is that people do confuse 
where the power lies. And that's been a problem for all of us, whether it's the Black Lives Movement or whatever movement, where is the power? And, and, the, and I keep going back to the, uh, to the position that the power lies with the people. The power lies with the people. And, and once you understand such, such a basic concept that we are the power base and these other uh, variables bend and reflect our decision to be extremely serious about our trajectory or not, then one begins to understand how to move issues forward. Like in one of our demonstrations in front of the Department of Justice, we decided to occupy a police station. Now, for a lot of people, and for us, I must admit, you know, our knees buckled a bit, but we made the decision that we were going to occupy a police station. And so the question was, how do we build a kind of base so that we can go into a police station and occupy it and really, and really show the community that we're in control of this, that they're not, in, they're not, they may have guns, they may have a lot of little toys around them, but we maintain the power. We maintain the power as the people. And so I think if people can somehow wrap their minds around um, where power really lies, it really helps your analysis of how to organize. And that's, there's been a real gap, I think, in terms of connecting the dots around this issue. And I hope that one of the things that the Black Lives Movement will do and the whistleblower movement will do will be to constantly clarify and reinforce that as the people, we are the ones that are in power. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Really uplifting to spend the last hour with the two of y'all. Um, so thanks to Marsha Coleman Adebejo and to Kevin um, for your time today, for the work that you do, for the work that you'll continue to do. And thanks to everyone who joined and listened in today uh, and to the Roots Action org network. Also, pay attention to um, facts. True facts. Is that it, Marcia? Dot or exposedfacts.com. 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 And um, you can read Kevin's blog at Kevin's blogs at firedoglake.com. Have a great day. A great evening. Bye.